Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 3rd, 2017 at 11am GMT. So, if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. For those of you who haven't done so already, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and to tweet us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. While you're at it, you might as well also check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. There you can find information about everything we got up to here at Turk. Including amongst this is information about our research, our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, future guests on this podcast, and our exciting new book series with IB Taurus. But before you rush off and do that, why don't you sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with today's guest. I'm delighted that joining me on the pod today is Dr. Bart Sherman from Leiden University's Institute of Security and Global Affairs and the International Centre for Counterterrorism. I've been impressed by Bart's research for a number of years now, so he was one of the first on the list of people to invite onto this pod. While Bart is best known for his analysis of a variety of themes relating to contemporary terrorist threats, his work initially focused on strong power defeats in asymmetric conflicts and the effectiveness of various forms of counterterrorism. However, since moving to Leiden in 2011, his research has developed to analyse attack planning and preparation of group-based and lone actor terrorists, over-representativeness of converts in Islamist extremism, the assessment of the state of terrorism research, and the Dutch reintegration programme for extremist offenders. If you want to know anything relating to Dutch terrorism, Bart and his colleagues at the ICCT should be your first port of call. So, I'm delighted to have him here. Welcome. Welcome, Bart. Thank you very much, John. How exactly did you get started in this area? How did you uh, come to become a researcher in terrorism and counterterrorism? Well, it was a bit unexpected, actually, because I did a master's at Utrecht University, which was, um, uh, well, my thesis was focused on strong power defeats and asymmetric conflicts. So it was about, I would say, the, you know, the bigger conflict war um, uh, between and within states. And I was initially looking to perhaps even pursue a PhD in that. I was lucky enough to get a job as a research assistant after my uh, master's, in which I continued looking at this topic. Um, but then I moved to Leiden in 2011, Leiden University, and there the focus was much more on terrorism, uh, so a lower level of violence, if you will. And that's really how I how I got involved. So I hadn't really envisioned this to begin with. I was always somewhat interested in terrorism, of course, um, but I was focused on war, uh, first of all, but then ended up really finding matters of great interest um, in uh, especially a Dutch terrorist group, the Hofstad group, that I really wouldn't have thought uh, I would be pursuing a PhD in if someone had told me at the time. It's amazing because like one of the things that I ask each um, each of my guests is to talk to give me some research that has inspired them and we'll have this as a conversation about that research before going on to your own research. And it becomes clear to me now why you picked one of the the um, the piece of research that you put forward. It was Clausewitz's On War. So that was obviously very important during your uh, initial research about war. Um, but how does it uh, fit in with your current research in terrorism studies? Or does it in, uh, help you understand things in relation to terrorism and counterterrorism? Well, I say Klaus was probably my my first academic love, if I could put it that way. Um, and he's still, uh, you know, I still really appreciate his work, although it's not as present in my research on terrorism as it was, as you as you rightly said, uh, when I was looking into more, uh, you know, uh, warfare, uh, interstate conflict and such. But I think there's something really of enduring relevance in Clausewitz's concept of not, you know, how to wage war or anything like that, but his philosophical discussion of what war or uh, violent conflict, organized violence essentially is. And it's a, it's a rather long discussion, but he kind of breaks it down into three elements. So it's about violence, it's about rational purpose, and it's about chance. And I think those are as applicable to the study of terrorism as they are to the study of interstate war or any other kind of organized violence. And I think they also draw attention to the fact that we cannot capture everything or account for everything. And there's also really this element of chance, of luck, of bad luck that often influences um, how state, you know, how, how wars progress. But on a smaller scale, perhaps also how people may become involved 
in something like uh, like terrorism. And of course, you know, saying it's chance is also an easy way to opt out of answering some very difficult questions, which is not what I would want to do. But it is something I think we have to keep in mind as one of the variables that do play a significant role in the processes that can lead to involvement in terrorism, uh, and in particular in terrorist violence. Okay, so this this issue of chance is fascinating because this would go against uh, what a lot of people would be saying, say in the radicalization uh, literature, the discussions about um, discussions about the role that ideology plays, and that's all about ideology. However, if you're going along with this this line of thinking that a lot of it is to do with chance, uh, that sort of skews what's been said there. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, I don't think we should overstate the role of chance when it comes to involvement in terrorism. But something that struck me, maybe just to, to flesh out with an example. Uh, so I've interviewed a number of people from my PhD research who were a member of a, a Dutch homegrown jihadist group. And they didn't just happen to, you know, become participants in this group. But chance did play a role. There were a couple of times where certainly if someone had you know, met someone else at a local mosque or not turned to a friend who happened to be already involved in this group, um, they would probably not have themselves become participants. So I think it's more on that level that chance has an influence. Uh, but I don't think we can say that, you know, people just by pure happenstance come to be um, involved in these kinds of uh, endeavors. I mean, it, at the end of the day, I'd say it's still about making personal decisions. Exactly. But it is about the circumstances as well. And it's about having those personal decisions within those circumstances as well, that we have to take everything on board. It's not just about uh, looking down one track. It's not just about looking at ideology or it's not just about looking at chance. It's not just about looking at uh, bits and pieces. No. It's about bringing everything together. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the things that at least uh, over the past several years has been an issue, I think, in terrorism research. And uh, I, I hate to generalize, but, you know, just to make a make a quick point here, I think there's been a tendency to look at this very complex issue of how and why people become involved in terrorism through perhaps, you know, singular theoretical perspectives that emphasize the role of ideology or perhaps of uh, social economic circumstances or, you know, factor x you know name whatever you will and then to i think overstate the explanatory value of that particular uh, variable i mean it's all and this is also an easy point but i think it's one that's very important to realize it's always going to be a multitude of factors that interact with one another and that differ even within one particular group on an individual level so we have to be very very careful of kind of these mono theoretical explanations for something that is as inherently complex as terrorism, and I think, and I think one of the things is oh sorry, uh, John, no, to interrupt you there. But well, I think one of the things that's uh, perhaps particularly guilty of doing that is some of the interpretations of radicalization, which seems to well, I think there's a lot that could be said to be wrong with radicalization. You know, it's it's very subjective. Um, it's open to various definitions. And I think one of the problems with it, and I know there's many more nuanced interpretations around as well, but I think in general, and perhaps also particularly pronounced among uh, policymaker and practitioner communities, is this idea that radicalization is largely or entirely dependent on the adoption of radical or extremist ideologies, which then influence people's behavior so that they become involved in terrorism and terrorist violence. And I don't want to say at all that ideology is not important. I think it's a variable of key, um, key importance, actually. But it's far too simple to say that this is, you know, the main explanation governing these involvement processes. We know for a fact that the vast majority of people with radical ideas never become involved in any way or shape or form in political violence. And the other way around, we also know that a minority, perhaps, but still a minority of actual terrorists are themselves not primarily motivated by their ideological convictions. So there's a disconnect both ways. And I think this also goes to show that, you know, speaks to the dangers of, of looking at this very complex phenomenon through this, I would say, one-sided perspective that affords too much explanatory value to one single thing, in this case, ideology. And this is where I think, and we're going to get onto your own research uh, in a minute, this is one of the core strengths that your research brings to this field, that it's 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 discussing from a very calm and sensible perspective that yes while we have this very important role that ideology plays if we're looking to 
understand why people are becoming involved in terrorism, if we're looking to therefore try and draw people away or prevent people from engaging in terrorism, we can't just be countering an ideology. We have to be looking at a number of different facets that have a role to play. And I think that you put it forward very clearly and you put it forward in a way that people can read it and go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That is what we should be doing. And um, that's something that we're going to get on to later in the discussion. But I want to move on then to the next piece of research that, um, that, that you have highlighted as, uh, as inspiring you, as being inspirational in your research. And this is a piece of research that a lot of terrorism researchers would look to and, ha- and would continue to look to. It's Donatella Della Porta's Social Movements, Political Violence and the State. And this is looking at it from a very different perspective than Clausewitz. It's looking at social movement theory. It's not based in uh, an analysis or uh, of... Of violent conflicts, but it's it's based in social movement theory and building up from that to try and understand political violence in the state. How how has this uh, influenced your research, and how does it still influence it today? Well, I think there's a lot to take away from uh, Donatella de la Porta's work, and she's a very very prolific author as well. And I think that particular book, one of the main um, things that I I took from it, and it's analysis um, of left wing violence, left-wing terrorism in Italy and in Germany in the 60s, 70s, uh, and 80s. And one of the things that really struck me was a point she makes, I think, very early on and then elaborates on uh, further in the book, is that the involvement processes, so how and why people become involved in groups like this, um, that they are governed at different times by different explanatory um, variables, if you will. So um, Put simply, or for for myself to make it uh, more easily understood, the reasons why people become involved, why they remain involved, and why some of them from this involvement go on to actually use uh, terrorist violence, those cannot be understood usually through one singular analytical perspective, but we must use different analytical perspectives to fully understand each of these three phases, if you will. So I think for what it did for me was it really forced me to adopt a very flexible analytical perspective and to realize that you know the reasons why people join a group like this might be very different or at least subtly different from the reasons why they stay and what again why some of them will actually go on uh, to use violence so this really yeah um, made me uh, appreciate the inherent complexity of involvement in terrorism and also gave me an idea of how we might be able to study it okay that's really interesting so have you found that what Delaporta was saying rings true when you're analyzing groups such as the Hofstede group, when you're interviewing people who have been involved. Uh, is that coming to pass, what she was saying? It has actually made a lot of sense um, uh, for me. I've, I've really been able to see that reflected in the conversations I've had with, uh, particularly with people who were involved in this homegrown jihadist Hofstede group. Um, one example is, is, is perhaps the clearest concerning an individual who was involved in this group and ultimately arrested for planning a terrorist attack and reconstructing his involvement pathway. And it was struck me that the reason why he initially became involved had to do with what we could call structural level factors. So he couldn't get an internship because of uh, job market discrimination against people of Moroccan descent. That didn't make him radical, um, but it merely meant that he had a lot of time on his hands. He was bored. He was meeting new people. He was more open to having conversations with individuals who otherwise have thought uh, a waste of his time. And in one of those conversations, someone gave him the idea that him not having an internship had nothing to do with his, his being of Moroccan descent, but everything to do with his being a Muslim in a land of unbelievers. Again, this didn't make this individual radical all of a sudden, but it made him interested. This individual who told him this saw this and put him in touch with other people within this uh, Hofstadt group. And then we see a shift in this involvement process. So it was initiated by this job market discrimination, perhaps also what we could call a chance encounter with this uh, older Syrian gentleman who gave him this idea about uh, the, the unbelievers, if you will. And then he enters this group and other dynamics take hold, and in particular the one where he just simply gets along very well with these people. Now, it's always important for me to emphasize this wasn't someone who was deprived of friends uh, or anything like that, but these people really embraced him as if he, if, as if he, if, as if he was their lifelong uh, best buddy, 
And he enjoyed it. And these were nice people, uh, which is something we often don't think about when talking about extremists or terrorists. But it seems that they, they were generally. And it was this feeling of belonging and this feeling of friendship that made him come back to this group. So this remaining involved in this Hofstadt group had much more to do with the social aspects and with the ideology. The ideology only really came um, as he returned to group gatherings and he, as he was himself, you know, um, more of an active participant in these discussions about what in their view was wrong with the world and with the, the Muslim Ummah, etc. Now, I was also curious, okay, so I understand how you got there and why you stayed there in this group, but what made you then decide to plan a terrorist attack? And here again, we see this shift in the involvement process, whereby he told me uh, there was a couple of things. One was seeing a propaganda video. I mean, he'd seen many of these, but in this one, a Palestinian woman was uh, mistreated by Israeli soldiers, and this Palestinian woman happened to resemble his own mother very closely. So it was this very personal identification. All of a sudden, it was like a slap in the face. Like you know, He'd been talking about all this perceived injustice for months, and it was time to do something. These were people just like your own family to him. And the second thing, which is kind of a, a crude point, I think, um, to people you know, not in this group, was he was extremely inspired by the murder of Dutch filmmaker Theo van Gogh by one of his compatriots in this Hofstadt group. Here was someone, my interviewee uh, felt, who didn't just talk the talk, you know, didn't just talk about all the injustice being perpetrated against Muslims or how they should deal with people who offend the prophet, but actually did something about it in a very violent, but to him, very inspirational way. So he was inspired to follow this role model. And the last thing um, I'd like to add, was there was also a subtle sense of peer pressure because this individual had been speaking about what they should do with unbelievers and with people who offend the prophet, etc. And now someone shows what actually they can do with these people. And in the setting he was in, in this radical group, it was very hard to then say, oh, but I just I didn't really mean it. All those words were just, you know, me, me posing. So there was this subtle group pressure for him to also turn his stated convictions into action. So we see personal identifications with victims of perceived injustice, we see following a role model, and we see these group pressures pushing him towards putting this act of terrorism, uh, or planning this act of terrorism, I should say. And with all that in mind, then, with all those different factors coming into play, what should this be telling those who are trying to design counterterrorism strategies? Well, that's also uh, always a very difficult question, but for what it really uh, tells me is that a lot of things really happen in the context of this radical or extremist group. I mean, ideologies are, in a sense, just words on paper, unless they somehow make sense to you. And a lot of this sense-making happens in this uh, small group context, where particularly when there's someone who is um, able to translate these sometimes um, abstract notions, is something that makes sense for individual participants, someone who's charismatic, someone who's perhaps been to Syria or Iraq or any other conflict zone and has authority through their uh, experience. So I think we need to pay far more attention to what happens in radical extremist groups and perhaps devise ways to intervene in those processes rather than just focusing on the content of the ideologies being um, uh, discussed. I suppose that person there is someone that... It, that's trustworthy in in their eyes and gives them certainty to about what's going on within the world and someone that they go okay they've had these experiences so therefore i can trust this individual and it, that can then lead them on that path as well uh talking about Delaporte's research and what you were talking about there it actually fits in nicely with the final piece that you said that has inspired you, the work of Max Taylor and John Horgan, a conceptual framework for addressing psychological process in the development of a terrorist. And they talk about this process model, about the different stages of involvement in a terrorist group, which seems to fit perfectly with that individual uh, that you were, you were talking about there and with uh, Delaporte's research as well. How has that fed into then your analysis in, uh, of it? people such as this, and in the topic as a whole. Well, I think you already uh, explained it very well. I mean, it fits really well with Delaporta's idea that you need to look at different faces uh, from different perspectives to understand them correctly. And I think what John Horgan and Max Taylor's work for me really emphasize is that there's the difference between involvement decisions and event, event decisions. So not everyone who becomes involved in a 
terrorist group, be that the IRA or ISIS or you name it, not all of those individuals actually occupy what we could call frontline roles. Not all of them place bombs or uh, kill people. Many of them are involved in logistics, in propaganda, in uh, recruiting new participants, etc. So there's a difference between becoming involved in a group and actually going on to participate in a terrorist event. And I think this needs to be made very clear analytically so we can also better understand what differentiates perhaps um, the, the pathways or the backgrounds of the, of the individuals and the various roles they occupy. So merely stopping when, you know, when someone's joined a terrorist group doesn't really complete our analysis, doesn't really tell us what that person is subsequently going to do and why he or she is likely to occupy, occupy one role but not another. So for me, this was a very helpful way of making this distinction that involvement isn't just some uh, you know, unitary end state but can mean many different things to different people. And people can also move between roles once they have occupied them. So a lot of stuff happens within these groups once people have joined. And we need to be, I think, more attuned to exactly what that is and how we can better understand those processes. Yeah, and I think this is a key point that a lot of uh, the history of terrorism research has missed. Now, it's acknowledged by a number of people, uh, yourself, John Horgan, Paul Gill, and others included, about this heterogeneity of roles that, I suppose it goes back to the definitional debate. If you're talking about a definition of terrorism, the definitional debate about terrorism is very different to the definitional debate of a terrorist, of someone who is involved in a terrorist group. Because, as you said, not everyone involved in a terrorist group will necessarily be partaking in, in political violence, be participating in terrorism. So if we're to get an overall understanding uh, of why people are becoming involved, why people are remaining involved and why people are leaving, we have to be able to understand uh, these roles as well. And exactly. your research, your reading of Max Taylor and John Horgan actually brought you to carry out research with John, with John Horgan, and it leads in perfectly actually to your first bit of your own research, which is Sherman and Horgan's work, uh, Rationales for Terrorist Violence in Homegrown Jihadist Groups, a case study from the Netherlands. Um, and we've been talking about this individual in the Hofstad group. Could you, just for the listeners, give a bit of background to who the Hofstad group are and what have they uh, been responsible for? Well, they were one of the, I think, earliest uh, incarnations of homegrown jihadism in Europe. They arose approximately 2002, and they lasted, I should say, until 2005, when uh, another round of arrests really um, uh, put an end to the group. Um, they began, as many individuals currently active in the jihadist scene in Europe, as potential foreign fighters. So the hardcore members of this group wanted to go abroad to Chechnya, uh, Palestinian territories, Afghanistan to join Islamist insurgents there. That didn't work out because, well, particularly because at the time it was much harder to reach those areas than it was until relatively recently uh, to go perhaps via Turkey to Syria. So then some of them in the hardcore of this group thought, well, if we can't join the jihad abroad, we can bring it uh, to us here in the Netherlands. And I think very fundamental in bringing about that change of perspective was also the 2004 attacks in Madrid which really inspired the Hofstra group because they, on the one hand, saw that it was possible to carry out acts of terrorism uh, in Europe and that by it being done, it was sanctioned, so it was permissible. So some of them tried planning uh, attacks in the Netherlands. Um, the, the one attack that was actually carried out was the murder of a, a controversial filmmaker, publicist called uh, Theo van Gogh, who was murdered in November 2004 by a Hofstra group uh, participant. Uh, that really brought about, brought about uh, the rest of the group. There was a small revival, if you could call it that, in 2005. More plots came to the surface. These individuals were arrested uh, once more. And that really uh, put an end to this Hofstad group. And is the history of the Hofstad group and their ideology, is it still have, uh, resonating within the Netherlands at the moment? Is it still having an influence on those modern day foreign fighters or, uh, or is it otherwise? Well, I think it still has an influence, particularly on people who are active in um, counterterrorism uh, you know, as practitioners or policymakers. It's still a, a, a case that's often referred to in the media. Uh, as for its influence on the current generation of foreign fighters, I think that's quite minimal. I mean, the individual who murdered uh, Theo van Gogh, he's called Mohamed Boyeri, he's something of a, well, I wouldn't say martyr for the cause because he's still alive, but mm. um, he's something of an, of an example. And his writings are sometimes referred to by uh, current day uh, foreign fighters. But I don't think they would recognize 
any of the other leading participants, uh, something really of a, a generational uh, gap as well. You talk in the paper about um, strategic and organizational rationales uh, for involvement in uh, in terrorist groups. Could you uh, differentiate for the listener, what exactly do you mean by strategic and organizational rationales? Yeah, so that's one thing that really fascinates me is why do terrorists use violence? Now, the, I think, predominant uh, notion we have is that they do so for strategic reasons. So they want to achieve a particular goal. And for whatever uh, reason, they think that using this form of violence is the most effective way of getting there. Uh, so it's a, it's a very instrumental relationship between means and ends. And I would say this is probably, you know, uh, present in, in most terrorist attacks. But there's also... Uh, a rationale that stems much more from the group itself, from protecting the group, from uh, advertising the group, um, from punishing those who betray it, for instance. So uh, punishing former comrades, uh, harming or killing police officers, perhaps, who have arrested or killed your friends. And that's a dynamic that was very prevalent. Um, well, one case I think is a good example is the Italian uh, Red Brigade, the Brigato Rossa, active in the 60s, 70s and 80s who really devolved into this kind of violence towards the end of their existence as a group, where they were much more concerned not with targeting class enemies or using violence to spark uh, a revolution in Italy, but much more focused on punishing those who had betrayed them, uh, punishing those who had taken away uh, their comrades. So the rationales for carrying out acts of uh, terrorist violence didn't really come from these strategic instrumental uh, deliberations, but we're much more a product of what was going on in this group and what these individuals themselves um, uh, cared about, uh, you know, namely prolonging this group and protecting it as best they could. So I think these two rationales exist alongside each other, but we don't really hear of the organizational one uh, all that often. But I think it's a very powerful one um, for accounting for many instances of terrorism, particularly in situations where you think, well, it, there's absolutely no point to going on with this use of violence. So why do they? Are they irrational? Well, in many cases, I'd say no. And in many cases, these organizational rationales offer a very compelling answer to that question of why terrorism uh, continues, even when it seems completely useless to even the most um, dedicated ideologues. And I suppose these organizational rationales and the discussion of those and the strategic rationales especially the organizational ones, it can blinker um, it can blinker those potentially within the group to what effect their violence is having externally from the group. Would, that, would I be right in saying that? Very much so, yes. And I think it also speaks again to the power of the of these small group dynamics themselves and that we, uh, I mean, a lot of great research has been done on what happens within extremist groups and also what happens within, within sects, you know, something uh, that uh, perhaps approximates in many ways uh, terrorist groups. And I think this just underlines that, you know, there's so much going on within these small groups that we, uh, I think, could focus on um, to really perhaps even identify uh, avenues for detecting, preventing or responding to this kind of violence. Yeah, and actually, when you think about this, when you think about this uh, organizational uh, rationale and the, the effect that it can have on certain times of uh, distracting uh, the terrorists from the effect their violence is having externally, one of the effects it is having is having is on the levels of support that there can be for their activity and the levels of support it can have for the activity that's countering uh, by the state that that's aimed to counter them. And that actually you you think we had actually planned this because that actually leads to your next paper <laughs> that I'm going to dis- that I want to chat to you about, uh, which is defeated by popular demand, public support and counterterrorism in three Western democracies, 1963 to 1998. And you talk about this this very issue. You talk about this the role that uh, terrorist violence can have on uh, levels of support and the role that support can play in uh, in prolonging a terrorist group, but can also play in legitimizing those counterterrorism initiatives. So what was your idea behind this paper then? Well, I think this paper stemmed from my earlier interest in, in what I would say are like the, the bigger questions of when does counterterrorism work? And I was still very fascinated, uh, as I still am, by the question of why can objectively, um, you know, better equipped state forces, uh, why are they often so hard put to defeat uh, irregular opponents like terrorist groups? And of course, context, something that matters a lot. And within 
all those contextual factors, factors the, uh, the way public support is divided between terrorists and counter-terrorist forces appear to, be, appear to me to be particularly important. So terrorism is often about eliciting an overreaction from state forces to show the public you know, just how bad the state is and to further gain popular standing, uh, the recruits, the intelligence, the funding, everything that comes with that. But it works two ways. So terrorists can also overplay their hand and use violence to a degree or of a, of a quality uh, that is deemed excessive even by their own, um, you know, their most committed supporters. And if they do so, if they overplay their hand, that opens at least temporarily a window of opportunity for state forces to come in and carry out even draconian uh, kind of terrorism operations that would otherwise simply not have been possible without eliciting further uh, a backlash from the population, which would further harm the state's ability to respond and to regain control. I think that's a fascinating dynamic you see in really a host of uh, counter-terrorism situations. I think in the paper I discuss a couple of them, you know, Canada against the FLQ in, in Quebec, um, the IRA, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and, you know, but it's something that's really present in uh, pretty much any situation that pits state forces against terrorist or insurgent opponents. But And we're talking here in this about public support. There, is there ever really large public support for terrorist campaigns? Well, of course, that's a subjective question. But for instance, in the 70s, it was, I don't remember, you know, don't ask me the, the numbers, but it was quite substantial support on the, among the uh, left-leaning parts of the population for the Italian, uh, the Red Brigade. Uh, similarly, in Germany, Germany, at least among students, there was quite a level of support for the Red Army faction and uh, similar entities. So, no, I don't think they were ever, um, you know, able to call on this, you know, mass popular movement. But there was certainly sufficient support for them uh, to continue for a long time a campaign of covert violence. You know, it afforded them safe houses, it afforded them funding, it got them uh, recruits, uh, sufficient recruits to uh, survive multiple um, waves of arrest uh, of, of members being killed and of course as a terrorist group as long as you're not interested in actually holding and occupying territory you don't need all that much support to carry out these operations successfully but you do need a minimum of it and i suppose this is one of the key points as well it's it's not always about when we're looking at levels of support and it's not always about national support some of these groups it's more reliant on very specific local areas where, as you said, they're reliant on getting safe houses, they're reliant on passive and active support <coughs> there within the groups. And it's it's not only about, uh, it, it's, it's not just about what an overall national poll will say. And I think it does come across very well within the papers as well. Okay, so yeah. wh why did you pick these three cases, the case of Northern Ireland, Italy and Canada? Well, I think they just stemmed really from the project I was doing after my master's, which was part of a larger research endeavor looking into the effectiveness of counterterrorism. Um, and I think it was I was simply tasked with uh, those case studies. So I thought they could be, uh, you know, a good basis for an article. Mm. And actually, um, going back to what we were talking about before, when the in the lead into the, the discussion about this article, um, we talked about uh, how the organizational rationale uh, can blind the group to what effect it's having externally um, on levels of support and so on. And you get bringing cases in here in relation to Italy, in relation to the Aldo Moro killing, and in relation to the FLQ in Canada, in relation to uh, Pierre Laporte. Uh, could you go into maybe one or both of those to explain the effect that these uh, these attacks had uh, on the group and more importantly on uh, the state's responses to these groups? Sure. So I think the, um, um, the well, all of them are interesting, but let's talk about the, the, the Red Brigades in Italy. So this was a, a left-wing terrorist group active in the 70s, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. And at least initially they could count on, let's say, significant support from uh, members of the, you know, the, the communist left, the, the more uh, far left groups in Italy, particularly among students. And that support enabled them for quite a long time to carry out their activities. But as they uh, progressed and as a new generation of militants stood up in the, in the 60s, they became ever more violent and less discriminate in their targeting. So at one point, these in, these, this group also began to target what were objectively supporters, uh, communist trade union members. 
And this simply went way too far for most people who might initially have thought, you know, at least somewhat positively about this group and its aims. And as they became too violent towards their erstwhile supporters, um, support dried up. They had fewer people to replace losses. Fewer people were willing to provide them uh, with such things, such necessities as safe houses, as money. And there was also a larger willingness or more leeway for the state, who had so far not really made the best impression countering uh, left-wing terrorism in Italy, and also uh, in particular through allegations of collusion with right-wing extremist uh, terrorist groups. So there was more leeway all of a sudden for the state to step in and quite uh, aggressively pursue this group than it would have been had they maintained at least this modicum of popular support that they had. So I think that matters a lot to their ultimate uh, demise. So on the one hand, uh, their support dried up. They had fewer people joining them, fewer people willing to give them the other essentials needed for a campaign of terrorism. And there was more uh, more of a, uh, yeah, more leeway for the state to step in and really aggressively pursue uh, this group and its members. Okay, so with all this in mind, we're discussing their um, terrorism in three Western democracies from 63 uh, till 1998. And what you would be best known for, Bart, is for a lot of people, as I was saying in the introduction, is your analysis of uh, terrorism and the Netherlands. Um, and that leads on to the final paper that you uh, that we're going to focus on of your own research. It's a paper that you did in 2016 with Edwin Backer, and it's uh, Reintegrating Jihadist Extremists, Evaluating a Dutch Initiative 2013 to 2014. Now, this... This paper I found fascinating. I found all of your papers fascinating, of course, but this one is slightly different to your traditional academic paper. Um, could you give a bit of background into the the origins of, of this paper um, and what you and Edwin are, are uh, talking about and describing? In, in sure, sure, of course. So in 2012, we were approached by the uh, Dutch National Coordinator for Counterterrorism and Security, a government agency, and they were quite concerned that so far in the Netherlands, whenever uh, someone convicted of terrorism or excuse-related offences was released from prison or released from probation, there wasn't really any specific program or initiative to really reintegrate them with an eye to minimizing the chance of uh, recidivism, terrorism-related recidivism. So they had set up a particular initiative to, um, uh, to improve this together with the Dutch probation service, but they wanted to know whether their efforts were actually worthwhile. So... From the get-go, they invited us or they asked us to carry out um, what we could call like a real-time evaluation uh, to chart this project's progress and to give some idea of whether or not um, its goals were being met. So that's when we stepped in and we did a the, like the, a one-year evaluation of the, the rollout period of this program, I should say. And currently, my colleague Lisbeth van der Heide is carrying out a two-year follow-on study to see you know, how it's developed in the interim and whether we can say a bit more about its effectiveness. And one of the things that, that stands out here in this, and I, I fully support it, is it's academics working alongside practitioners and using our academic understanding, what we've gained from our own research, to help um, to help those who are involved from a practitioner point of view. However, as you know yourself, there are those who would be critical of um, of that that approach. What would you say to those who are saying, no, as academics, we should be uh, divorced from all engagement uh, with practitioners and with the state? Um, well, I wouldn't agree with it, I think, quite <laughs> obviously. But because I think terrorism is a, is a topic with such high societal relevance as well. I think the key thing here is perhaps not so much whether or not you engage with practitioners or the state, but whether you do so objectively. Um, and as soon as, of course, someone gives any indication that their research is being colored by the preferences of the funding body or the practitioners you're, you're working with, that's a very grave um, uh, situation, I would say. So I would invite people, of course, to, to be critical of, of our work uh, in this sense and perhaps other uh, initiatives, but to really do so on the basis of um, clear arguments and clear examples of where this ob objectivity is threatened or you know goes out the window completely, perhaps in the, in the gravest situations, but not to dismiss out of hand any kind of collaboration between academia and government, which I think is... Uh, well, which I think is a bit ridiculous, actually, to be uh, completely fair, because it happens in so many domains. And there are so many ways, I think, in which academics 
have something to offer to practitioners and policymakers, and in, by doing so, the larger public, um, that we really shouldn't miss these kinds of opportunities. I think this is a really important point that you make, and it's a debate that will go on, and there's some of the guests on this podcast who will have their uh, their disagreements uh, in relation to the approach, and it's a debate that we should we should um, we should continue on um, and and really look into it. But it's as you said, taking into account the objectivity uh, versus subjectivity as well. But let's get back to the actual core of the research here. It's looking at a reintegration program. Do you, from research, do we need? Uh, reintegration programs and do reintegration programs actually work? Well, they, I think those are two very interesting questions. Um, what really interested me or got me, you know, uh, fired up to carry out this research was that quite a lot of these programs are already being implemented and have been for a number of years around the world, but we know at least publicly very little about their effectiveness. Some will claim success, but the number of objective uh, you know, third-party evaluations of these kinds of initiatives is very small. So we can't really say anything for sure. At least that was, that was the case when we wrote this paper. Um, so I think that's something very important to keep in mind. Now, as to your question of whether or not this works, that's, that's very hard to assess. We, as we state repeatedly in the paper, we don't have any objective measure of success because we didn't have a control group uh, to work with. So we had to rely on something uh, much more uh, subjective, which is the practitioners, people involved, their own interpretation, their subjective interpretation of whether or not their interventions had any kind of effect towards reducing the likeliness of recidivism. So I grant that this is a very soft uh, measure indeed, but it was under circumstances the best and the only thing that we could do at the time. And I think, and I hope that in the future, not perhaps uh, my colleagues and I at Leiden, but you know, uh, people anywhere, researchers anywhere, will be able to carry out some kind of controlled uh, study with a, um, a comparison group to really measure whether these kinds of interventions um, have any success on the, or have any influence on the behavior or the views of the people uh, being reintegrated into society. I think this is something that's missing from terrorism and counterterrorism stu- uh, research. And it's it's repeated time and time again is this lack of a control group in the majority of research that's getting done, and it's it's an important uh, quest, uh, point to raise, but it's a an e- a difficult problem to solve as you rightly as yourself and Edwin rightly point out uh, within the paper as well. So let's take a step back uh, for a second. Let's get a bit of context. What exactly what did this reintegration program look like? And who was involved in it? So the main party involved in it is the Dutch probation service. And I think the main difference here is also in the amount of time that they have to work with what they call clients. So usually they are kept to a a quota. They have to write a number of reports in which they advocate particular measures for the reintegration process. And other colleagues of theirs then oversee this reintegration process. Now, the difference for this particular program is that this distinction between people who report on clients and those who carry out the reintegration, um, that ceased to be. So someone oversaw the entire process through the reporting phase, ending with the actual reintegration phase, which could last years. Uh, So this was to build up also um, uh, confidence and trust with the client and to better get a grasp of whether these people were you know, being honest or perhaps leading someone on. And the second thing to come with that, of course, is that funding was made available so that this time could be spent on these individuals. So there were some structural changes to the way in which this work was carried out. Another very important difference is that this was a particular team within the Dutch probation service. They were given uh, quite extensive and ongoing training with regard to terrorism, jihadism, radicalization, you name it, so that they are better able to understand and um, you know interact with their clients and there was also specific what they would call uh, de-radicalization uh, de-radicalization component when deemed applicable um, these clients would be put in touch with um, yeah, de-radicalization experts to discuss their worldviews and to try and infuse at least a sense of gray in what were often very black and white uh, right or wrong uh, ways of looking at the world and so what, I think those were the main differences. 
So would I be right in saying when we're looking at this that there was actually a bit of tension uh, within the teams between those who had a focus on de-radicalization and others who had a focus on what we would call disengagement? Yeah, there was actually. It was quite interesting that um, more on the, I would say, the, the, the government side, the, the agency interested in setting up this program in the first place, uh, there was a stronger focus on de-radicalization. They were really interested in getting these clients to abandon their uh, oftentimes jihadist worldviews in favor of something in which violence is not seen as legitimate. On the other hand, most of the probation service professionals, based on their own working experience, uh, hold a view, held a view that, well, to begin with, it's very hard to change someone's you know, fundamental way of looking at the world, and it may not even be necessary. I mean, we can disagree with people holding radical extremist views, and they are often very abhorrent views, but as long as they don't actually break the law, as long as they don't actually directly or indirectly support uh, the use of terrorist violence in any way, we could still consider their reintegration a success, even if they don't abandon um, their points of view. So this was quite an interesting um, yeah, discussion about deradicalization on the one hand and what we could call disengagement on the other. And, but as we argue in our paper, we didn't really see it as a fundamental uh, problem because I think both avenues towards reintegration um, uh, can really exist alongside one another. I mean, some individuals... Uh, Deradicalization efforts might be more effective or necessary for others. It makes very little sense to talk about ideology because maybe they weren't drawn to this involvement in extremism and terrorism through ideology uh, primarily in the first place. So rather than focusing on one or the other, I think having both of these avenues in there, disengagement and DRAD, actually affords a program like this some flexibility and perhaps makes it better equipped to um, actually work towards recidivism reduction. And I suppose it goes back to the point we were discussing about earlier that uh, one person's rationale uh, for engagement with the terrorist group or continued engagement with the terrorist group can be very different to someone else's. So therefore, that we need to be able to, to tailor these programs for individuals uh, who are engaged with it as well. Uh, one of the exactly. Things, one of the things I found really interesting uh, about, the, about the paper is that it was mentioned about the um, presence of PTSD in some of the clients. Could you, uh, did you get a, a sense of uh, what had brought this on or how this was affecting them? Well, um, that did occur. So in several instances, there were clients where there um, was an indication that they were suffering from PTSD or uh, probably based on what they had seen while abroad as foreign fighters. And well, there were attempts were made to uh, get them to seek treatment uh, for their PTSD as part of trying to, you know, better equip them for uh, a life outside of prison, in which they would have to deal with, you know, all kinds of uh, stressors. And you know, addressing or perhaps even removing this problem was seen as a big uh, a step towards um, a more successful reintegration efforts. And this, as well, comes to to another point that we discussed earlier in relation to the role that, that trust can play, like in order to be able to acknowledge that, yeah, this is something that we'll deal, that needs to be dealt with from the individual's point of view, that they have to be able to trust those who are going to be helping them. And not just in relation to their PTSD, but in relation to the reintegration program as a whole. How did, uh, how did the, the team go about fostering this trust or attempting to foster this trust in the individuals? Well, that's a good question. And I think they went about it um, um, by, as I, as I referred to earlier, making sure that it was one person overseeing the entire reintegration process rather than the usual uh, two. And by having much more time to spend with individual clients than they would have had with, uh, you know, quote unquote, regular uh, clients in the uh, uh, probation service. So that was really seen as a key to gaining trust, but it was also turned out to be extremely difficult where there was uh, these two instances of people, of clients, where their probation staff thought, well, you know, we've gained quite a good working relationship. And then all of a sudden they escaped to, uh, to Syria. And this was very unexpected and was quite a big setback as well. And particularly because it proved how difficult it can be to really assess whether you have someone's uh, trust and whether they're being open with you uh, or not. So it just goes to show how extremely difficult uh, this kind of work is. But perhaps as, an, as a small aside, um, 
I think there's, and legit, legitimately so, there's a lot of interest in reintegration, uh, rehabilitation programs recently. Um, but I think one thing that we shouldn't forget is that reintegration, at least in my opinion, is not the first or the go-to response, for instance, when people return from Syria or Iraq. I think in many cases, exceptions are always there, of course, and, but in many cases that should be criminal prosecution. So I think also it's very important for these programs' continued ability to exist, that in the popular perception, this isn't some kind of uh, way out that is simply given to people who return from Syria, for instance, but this is just a very pragmatic way of at least ensuring a you know, modicum of oversight and control over individuals once they have finished a uh, prison sentence. So I think that's perhaps some important context to give as well. I think that's an important uh, message to put out, an important context to give in relation to it as well. Um, well, you talked there about a, a, a couple of the, the clients um, going to Syria during it. And in the discussion about them and the other clients as well, we found that um, the notoriety of, a, of two of the clients um, had a significant influence and I, in relation to the, to the program itself. Could you discuss the role that that notoriety um, may have had? Of course, yeah, that was, that was quite interesting. So there were, all of these clients, two were really well known, um, uh, basically because they were former participants in this Dutch Hofstadt group. So they, they'd been, you know, in the media and everything. But perhaps objectively, some of the other people who were clients in this program at the time were, one could say, more dangerous or had more relevant skills to committing acts of terrorism or more relevant experience. But because they were unknowns to the general public, getting, for instance, municipalities to help the probation officers with such things as finding accommodation for these individuals or starting a debt relief program and, and, and you know uh, initiatives such as those was far less complicated. So the notoriety uh, could be a real impediment to successfully reintegrating these individuals after their uh, prison sentences. Yeah, and this, it does make it tricky, all right. It, it does make it especially tricky if we are to attempt something like these reintegration programs. Actually, one of the questions I should have asked at the beginning is, how did yourself and Edwin go about evaluating it? What kind of methodology did you use? So what we tried to do is look at three things. Uh, we looked at the, um, um, the program theory, so the assumptions underlying this reintegration program. What were the outcomes that were being worked towards and what kind of interventions did these individuals have in mind? Like, so what do they think would work towards achieving their, their goal of lowering the likeliness of recidivism? Then we also looked at the process itself. So how did the implementation of this um, uh, special project go? Um, you know, were the, all the agencies involved willing to work together? What kind of obstacles were encountered, etc.? So very practical things. And finally, yeah, we tried to have at least some measure of its effectiveness by talking about the perceived effectiveness of this program as seen by the, the staff involved. So it was along those three axes that we uh, asked our questions. And to get a measure of how the program developed over time, we held three rounds of uh, semi-structured interviews with program staff and with the staff from the um, Dutch counterterrorism coordinator to see if we could you know, assess uh, progress on, on all these avenues. We would have loved to have spoken with uh, the clients themselves, but at the time this was deemed uh, uh, to, be, to have been a harmful intervention, uh, something that wouldn't have helped their reintegration process, so we were not allowed access to these individuals unfortunately and with those measures in mind what did your findings show uh, well many of the things were very very practical uh, we already talked about um, the what i think the most interesting uh, findings were really were related to these underlying assumptions and that really manifested itself in on the one hand the more the government agency who funded this whole program really saying we want de-radicalization and the probation service staff more or less on the whole being of the mind that uh, disengagement, you know, so getting people to abide by the law without changing their radical mindsets was really the most realistic and best outcome uh, to be hoped for. So that in itself was me, for me was interesting. One thing that I found quite worrisome, that success was never really made explicit. So they wanted to reduce the chance of recidivism. Okay. But by how much? You know, when could you say this program is effective? And then by not making that measurable, 
it's very hard to say whether uh, you know you've you've met your goals because if we look at recidivism in general in the Netherlands, the latest data I have is that approximately 50% of um, juvenile and adult offenders will you know come into contact with the authorities again within two years of being released from prison. Now, will we say that 50% is like the, the norm? Would that be acceptable for people who were terrorist offenders? Do we demand zero percent recidivism? You know, is that is that at all practical? Is that at all achievable? That's a very difficult discussion. Like, where do where do we lay the um, you know, what, what is success for us? But if we don't have that discussion, I think we're going to be we're going to keep going in circles, and you know, it's going to remain very um, subjective whether any of these programs work. And I think this is an issue not just in the Netherlands, but more broadly in you know in Europe and perhaps uh, across the world. As far as I know, at least publicly, there's very little information on um, recidivism rates for terrorist offenders. I, mean, I know that Daniel Köhler in Germany has published some data on this, but it would be great if we had some more information that we could perhaps compare countries. So let's say in Norway, recidivism is only 30% and in the Netherlands it's 50 We don't know exactly why that is, but we might have some idea that in Norway they're doing at least something right or relatively better than in the Netherlands. And we could perhaps learn from their approach to see where we could tweak the one that we have going on in my own country. So. You know, we might not be able to get control groups, but at least if we have some much broader level of a uh, way of, of gauging success, that could also help us. But I think, again, that this data is by and large unavailable. And it would be great if countries opened up and actually measured this and you know made it uh, available to, to the public. I think this is a really good point. And it's a, an excellent point that you make that when we're looking at any of these uh, initiatives, whether they're reintegration initiatives, whether it's a de-radicalization specific one or whatever we're, we're looking at, that discussion at the very beginning before implementation about what would success look like is a tough but vitally important one. And this discussion about uh, recidivism in, uh, in terrorism, like, there would be discussion that isn't based on too much data that's saying, well, recidivism, recidivism rates within uh, terrorist offenders is a lot lower than those within the ordinary, uh, the ordinary criminal population as well, the non-terrorist criminal population. But as you say, we need more data on this and we need to be able to, to analyze this uh, much further before we can uh, have those discussions about success uh, properly. It's one of the areas that is needs to be looked at in terrorism research a bit more um so and there's been a lot of debate about how there has been whether there has been a stagnation in terrorism research or not not just around this issue of recidivism but in terrorism research as a whole and in the introduction i mentioned that one of your areas of interest is analyzing the state of terrorism research how do you see it today how do you see the state of terrorism research well, I think that's a fascinating topic. Um, and to be really honest, I think I might have to eat some humble pie when it comes to that topic, because I think I've been one of those people, uh, at least a while ago, uh, in, a, in a paper from a couple of years back, uh, echoing this idea that you know terrorism research is in a lot of trouble, and particularly when it comes to the use of primary sources. Now, I'm not, I haven't completely changed my opinion on this. I think the use of primary sources in particular still remains an issue. It's it's far too few and infrequently used. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to empirically assess the many explanations we have, for instance, for involvement in terrorism. I mean, there's over 50 have been inventoried by Alex Schmidt, I believe. And one of the main issues there is when they might all apply, many of them are very nuanced and theoretically complex, but without sufficient um, empirical data to assess their validity, and data not drawn from newspaper inter- newspaper articles, but from primary sources of information, it's going to remain extremely hard to really move the de- debate forward on what actually brings people to involvement. Now, I think I've mainly based myself on other authors, you know, saying that it's an issue. And what I'm really interested in is trying to get an, you know, an, make an update. Um, Andrew Silk wrote a phenomenal paper in 2001 where he looked at a couple of the main terrorism journals and, you know, came to a pretty pessimistic conclusion. And he had a couple of updates, I think, up to 2009, but that's already quite a long time ago. So in my spare time, I've been working on a um, a database looking at uh, terrorism research published in seven journals over the past 10 years to get an idea of primary sources use. And it's a 
um, at least from for 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 my own uh, uh, from for me it's a it's a huge project in terms of data collection so I haven't really been able to finish it yet it's something that keeps me awake at night I would love to get this done but preliminary conclusions indicate that the uh, low rate of primary sources used sometimes uh, recorded such as six percent I think someone uh, mentioned in two thousand six. I don't think it holds up anymore. I think, especially in recent years, we're seeing a definite increase in the amount of articles that use primary sources-based data. So, I again, I want to be very hesitant in drawing preliminary conclusions, but I don't think we need to be as pessimistic, perhaps, as we have been in the past. And I don't think we can really talk about a field in stagnation. That's it's very positive to hear. It's great to hear actually that that you that you don't feel that after looking at that data. What what type of um, primary sources do you see people using when you're looking at that? Is it mainly interviews? Is it statements? What is it? So again, this is all kind of very preliminary. Mm. But um, most the most uh, most used primary source is definitely interviews, um, followed by um um yeah reading you know documents put out by uh, terrorist organizations in particular is and al-qaeda um and perhaps followed by online content analysis so looking at what people put on twitter for instance uh jihadist websites going through jihadist or right-wing extremist forums and the like but i think interviews would definitely still come in at number one i think as well like when we're looking at, when we're entering this stagnation debate um, whether it's a, a stagnant area or not one of the things, it's not just about the data that's being used, but it's the questions that are being asked. Um, for many people, it's the same questions being asked again and again, like we discussed earlier on about the radicalization debate. Do you think that there are any questions, we talked about recidivism there, but are there any other questions that need to be asked that aren't being asked within this area? Well, one, one particularly, uh, I think, fascinating topic would be to not just look at the people on the sharp end, as in the people who actually commit terrorist attacks, where I think rightly so, okay, but who we focus on maybe a bit too much, but to compare them with their, let's say, compatriots in their groups who often don't use violence. So how can we better understand why certain people within terrorist groups actually go on to plant bombs, kill people, whereas others don't occupy those what we could call frontline positions. So some kind of perhaps control group study, or at least a comparison, I should say, between people who in similar circumstances, so within particular terrorist groups, one choose to use violence and others uh, who do not. I think there is some research going in that direction. I think it would be very fascinating to follow that up um, uh, more extensively. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic, and it's one that uh, that I think really does need to be looked at more in depth. And we're just finishing up the podcast now, and with with that in mind, and actually, you wouldn't think it from hearing the depth of um, of Bart's research, but Bart has just actually finished his PhD. He's not someone who's been around for years um, uh, doing this kind of research. You're someone who's just finished your PhD. You've you've done an amazing amount of work in that in that short space of time. With that in mind, what advice would you give someone who's just starting out their PhD now um, on this this broad area of terrorism and counterterrorism? Ooh, that's a that's a tough question. That's going to make me feel very old giving <laughs> giving <laughs> advice. Um, well, I think coming back to an earlier point, so I don't think terrorism research is in as bad a shape as it's sometimes made out to be, as as I've perhaps myself sometimes claimed it is. That being said, I don't think. Um, there's not plenty of room for improvement. And I think one of the main areas is still, if you can get your hands on any kind of first-hand data, empirical evidence, um, in many instances, you'll have a treasure trove to work with. So, you know, there's many ways in which you can go about it. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, super dangerous field work in Syria or something like that, which I would advise against very heavily. Um, but particularly with the opportunities for gathering data online or perhaps carrying out evaluations of government programs, there's so much that can be done. Um, and I think we really still need to gather more uh, of that firsthand information and use it not just to develop new theories, but to assess the ones we already have to see if we can somehow shift those that, you know, while likely or while they make intuitive sense, might not actually be uh, empirically substantiated from those that really are amassing a lot of uh, empirical validation. So I think 
data collection, um, there's lots of room there to really make a contribution uh, to the field. I think that's a really good point to, to finish up on, actually. It's a good message to, to, um, to finish today's pod with. And I, I think it's been a really interesting discussion. I could talk to you for hours about your research, Bart. And uh, I would strongly advise anyone who's interested in this kind of research to go onto our website, UEL ac.uk slash t-e-r-c there are links to all the research that we were talking about here bart's own research as well as the research of uh, taylor and horgan klaus Fitz and della porto which we discussed earlier on in the pod i'd just like to to thank you bart for uh for chatting with us today um I'm looking forward to following your research over the next few years um, I'd like to thank Jamie Murray for editing today's podcast. There were a few disturbances on Skype, so uh, Jamie's got a tougher uh, a tougher task of editing today than he does on, on other occasions, but I'm sure uh, he's done a great job. I'm sure he's probably cut out this bit where I'm thanking him now. So uh, thanks again, Bart, and be sure to tune in uh, next week for the next episode of Talking Terror with the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. Okay, goodbye. I hope that you found that chat with Bart Shurman as interesting as I did, and uh, I think it was definitely something worthwhile. Next week, if you want to tune in, you'll get to hear my chat with Professor Erica Chenoweth. In that discussion, Erica will be talking about how the works of uh, Max Abrams, Martha Crenshaw, Jeremy Weinstein has influenced her career as well as the influence of Zlata's diary on her career. As well as discussing all that, we'll be talking about Erica's own research, research that looks at why civil resistance works, terrorism and democracy, and her work with Laura Dugan, which was discussed in a previous podcast, looking at moving beyond deterrence, the effectiveness of raising the expected utility of abstaining from terrorism in Israel. So I do hope you can join us for that, that chat. Okay, until then, goodbye.